Jesus' name. Amen. Right, my plan this morning is to uh, take you through the passage at point one uh, uh, in the outline and then spend much of time on point two to, to focus on a couple of things uh, or issues that the passage raised for us. Uh, as we go through the passage, I'm going to uh, draw your attention to a few important points um, for further reflection. Uh, due to time constraint, obviously, um, I'm not going to uh, speak on every uh, point that the passage raised for us, but nonetheless, uh, there are many important and interesting things that we need to consider as we think about what God uh, wants us to learn from this passage. So um, when we come to those points, um, I will slow down and then I'll speak on those things. The first thing to remember is that we are still hearing Moses' first sermon. Uh, and the chapter 4 that we just read uh, takes, is like a long conclusion to a very long sermon. Uh, as such, uh, we'll notice that there is a, a kind of much exhortation uh, in this chapter, and the core of that exhortation is to take God's word or his law seriously that he's about to expound. So, in verse 1, Now Israel... Hear the decrees and the laws that I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and go in and to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is, is giving you. So taking God's words seriously is to follow them, to obey them, apply them in your life. That is, obedience is the essence of faith, isn't it? Taking God seriously is to take his word seriously and to take his words seriously is to obey them, to state the obvious. But did you notice how he says, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land? You see, obedience is not only the essence of faith, but it's also the only way that leads God's people to life. Obedience is the only way that leads God's people to life. Without God's word, you won't know how to have life and to live to its fullest. Uh, you might recall that um, the, how we uh, were working our way through John's gospel. Um, the, the first chapter of, um, of his, his famous gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, uh, was God. And then he says, in him was life. The true life, the life as it was meant to be, and such life was found only in Jesus. In other words, people can have that life if and only when they find themselves in Jesus. You know, it's much like how uh, taking possession of the, uh, the promised land was so closely tied to obeying God's word. Israel can have the life, the real life, the only life, only when they are in the land and only when they stay within the boundary of life set by God's law in that land. You see, the location of the true life is defined by obedience to God's law in the promised land. Even if you go inside the promised land, if you stay outside God's law, well, you're not going to find life. Furthermore, this life of obeying God's law in trusting God's goodness is spoken of as living a wise and discerning life in verse 6. Obey them carefully. 
but this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations uh, who will hear about all the, the, the decrees and they say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The life Israel can, uh, can enjoy in obedience to God's law is not just any old, same, boring or painful, burdensome life. Instead, it can be such an attractive and commendable life, testifying to the surrounding nations how wonderful and amazing life can be when God's law is revered and obeyed. You know, in much the same way, uh, the life that we live as Christians in obedience to the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus will have an amazing impact on the, the life of those uh, on look, on, uh, sorry, onlookers so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us, as he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, or that we might shine like stars in the sky with Philippians chapter 2. Now, this gives me an opportunity to, uh, uh, to correct a common misunderstanding about the place of the way we live our life in evangelism. Um, unfortunately... I often hear people say that we are to preach the gospel with our words, but also with our life. I understand why people are trying to say that we must not contradict the gospel with the way we live. That's true. However, the content of the gospel, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners by laying down his life as an atonement for sins and arose from the dead, that we might be forgiven and have a new life, that content of the gospel is not something that we can perform. At best, we can show our love for others as God has showed his love to us. But the core of the gospel, the death and the resurrection of our Jesus for our sins, is not something that we can explain with what we do. It can only be explained as we preach, as we expound, as we explain the gospel. So to say that we preach the gospel with our words but also with our life is actually, it's misleading. It's actually um, taking things away from the, the focus of preaching the gospel. So the role and the place uh, of our life, uh, uh, the role and the place uh, in our life of the evangelism uh, is actually to adorn the gospel. Uh, it's, it's putting a shimmering light on the gospel and, and the benefit of living the, the gospel-driven life, but our life in itself will not explain the gospel to people. Just wanted to uh, correct that point. Uh, moving on to the second part, let me quickly uh, uh, take you through the, the, the remaining part. Having urged to take God's word seriously, Moses began to explain which law that he is urging Israel to obey. Well, which law? the one that Israel received from God at Mount Horeb. See there in verse 11, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain with, with, uh, while it blazed with fire uh, to uh, the very heavens with black clouds and a deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of the word, but so no, no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his uh, covenant, the Ten Commandments and so on. See, this was a very, very important point, and therefore he repeats the same thing in verse 15. But notice how this time 
Moses adds the implication of what they experienced on that day. See there in verse 15? You saw no form of any kind the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of fire. Therefore, watch yourselves and be very careful so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourself an idol, an idol of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any other animal on the earth. Any attempt to visualize God is absolutely forbidden because Israel saw no form. And not only forbids Israel to make any Israel to represent God, but he also warns in verse 19 not to bow down and serve anything that is not God. And because it's such a crucial commandment, Moses says it again in verse 23, Be careful not to forget the covenant the Lord your God has made with you. Do not make for yourself an idol in any uh, form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So at the heart of the concluding part of the first sermon, Moses makes a passionate plea to stay away from idolatry either by not making the image of the true God or attempting to serve anything other than God himself. The point is that God cannot be reduced to a, visual, a visible form, for nothing in this world can accurately capture God and his essence of being. But did you notice then how Moses says that God is a fire? In fact, in the whole chapter, Moses refers to fire whenever he speaks about God. You see there in verse 11, Horeb burned with fire because God came down upon it. Or in verse 12, the Lord spoke out of the fire. And again in verse 15 and, and 33. And finally in verse 36, on earth he showed you his great fire and that you heard his words from out of the fire. If you think about it, you can see why fire is what represents God. It's formless. That is, it doesn't have any permanent shape. And yet, because of its heat, you feel its presence. Although, for the very same reason, it's utterly unapproachable. It burns up everything that stands on its way, and the more intense it is, the more it resembles jealousy. It is formless, yet more observable than anything, even in the dark. You think of God? Well, don't think of God's made of wood and stone and which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. Moses, think, Moses says, think of fire. Intensely burning fire and be warned of God's holiness. Having explained uh, God's total disdain against idolatry, the Moses says, uh, Moses in verse 25 to 31, prophesies the future of God's people. What is that future? See the second half of verse 26? You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord your God will drive you. There 
you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. Moses just made a passionate plea not to make anything to represent God or to serve other gods. But in as much as he was passionate about this, Moses knew that this people were going to fail. They're just not going to, not going to be able to listen to God and take God's word seriously. This generation who are about to go in and take possession of the land, the promised land, was no different to any previous ones. They were just as stubborn and sinful and they were not going to be able to trust their God. But being a prophet, he anticipates that God, their God, the God of their fathers, Yahweh, will turn things around. See there in verse 29, it says, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. And when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed them by oath. And lastly, here is the conclusion to the concluding part of Moses' first sermon. What is his conclusion of all conclusions in verse 35? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is none. And again in verse 39, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep this decree and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may go and live long in the land that Lord your God gives you for all times. And so here we are, back to where we first started. Take God's word seriously so that you may live. But the fundamental truth that, which, that they must understand clearly and take it to their heart was that their God is the only God, the only God in heaven and on earth, and there is no other. Now, having looked at what this passage says, let me now um, draw your attention uh, to uh, two, uh, following two points in particular. The whole sermon, and not just chapter 4, is on looking back to refresh their memory of what they have witnessed about God. That's why he goes all the way back to the Exodus event. He explains how God uh, took them through the, the wilderness and brought them to Mount Sinai and gave them the law and how they wandered around for 40, uh, 38 years and how God has enabled them to destroy other foreign uh, kings and, and brought this point where they were about to take in, in possession of the land. It was a very long explanation on Israel's experience. Notice how um, uh, this chapter puts so much emphasis on seeing. Verse 3, you saw with your own eyes 
what the Lord did at Baal Peor. Or verse 9, be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things that your eyes have seen or let them fade from your hearts as long as you live. Again in verse 12, when the Lord spoke to you out of the fire, you heard the sound of the word, but you saw no form. Or down in verse 15, you saw no form of, of, of any kind that the Lord your God spoke to you at Mount Horeb out of fire. Or down in verse 35, you were shown these things so that you, may, you might know that the Lord is God. The point that Moses is making is, although you have experienced God, you've experienced a lot by seeing his work, and therefore you have every reason to have faith in God by taking his law seriously. You have every reason to believe God because you've experienced so much, you've seen so much. But I know that's not going to be enough. I know that despite all these evidences, all these things that you've experienced, you will not trust God. Now, I think this is a serious indictment against not only the people of Israel, but the whole of humanity. You know, we've become so accustomed to sayings like, Seeing is believing. Uh, this idea is often referred to by those uh, who study philosophy, does anyone know? As empiricism, right? It's an idea that, uh, uh, which says all learning comes only from experience and observations. You think about it, I mean, there's so much emphasis on science these days. Science has now become the knowledge source. So we hear uh, on school grounds teenagers saying to the Christian kid uh, who is trying to defend his faith, well, make God appear before me now and I will believe. Yeah, this is putting a lot of confidence in human, don't you think? People think that they can just have faith whenever they decide to have faith. That with enough evidence, they can just automatically and effortlessly generate faith. It's putting a lot of faith in your faith, your, your, your capacity to, to have faith. But the truth of the matter is that seeing is not everything. In fact, we have a lot of sayings that goes against it. Think about the expressions like, there is more than meets the eye. Or, don't judge the book by its cover. Looks can be deceiving. Well, how many times have we made that mistake? You see, the godless society has turned science into God and ridicules Christian faith as a fairy tale that has no evidence. We only believe what we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears and touch with our hands. I'm not going to believe anything that does not sound right or does not feel right. But God, who has no form, turns that idea upside down. Look at Israel. 
Moses says in verse 32, Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day that God has created human beings on earth. Ask them from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this has ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself a nation out of another nation by testing, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deed like all the things that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? Did all this amazing privilege of experiencing and witnessing God's power and his grace generate faith in Israel? Well, the answer is no. You see, faith is trusting something that is deemed worthy of being dependable or true. And therefore, our faith is never without evidence. However, faith is much more than just having evidence, isn't it? You might recall in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is conviction of things not seen. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. How is it possible that we have faith in something that we have not seen? You see, Moses provides an answer for us. You have not seen him because there was no form, but you heard his words. Um, I don't know if, if, you, um, if you're a fan of philosophy, there's a guy called Wittgenstein. Does anyone, does anyone know? Uh, do you know what he's famous for? I mean, there are many things that he's famous for. But he says something along the line of um, words are home of your essence or your being. And if you think about it, that's true, isn't it? See, who you are is what you speak of. Uh, you, you, tell, you, you can say so much about the person. You can tell so much about the person uh, when you listen to what the person says. It projects your ideas, your thoughts, your personality. Uh, you might even say what the person says is that person. You can't separate the two. And that is certainly the case with God. You saw no form but you heard his words. And so Moses urging people not to turn, things, to turn your faith about God into a, a visible form, but listen to his word. You have every reason to listen to his word because, well, God has done all these things for you, and therefore take his word seriously. Now, I think this is a, a related issue uh, when it comes to the warning against idolatry. 
you will recall in uh, our reading from Romans that people commit adultery because, because what? Why do people commit adultery? Because they want to run away from God. They want to run away from the real God as much as they can. And they want to run away from God as much as they can. And so they either turn to what is not God or they try to reduce the real God into a kind of a domesticated form so that you can sort of have a kind of power over him. But how silly and stupid that is. I mean, how can you even imagine to think that God can be represented by a static things, the things that is unable to speak, that unable to do anything? I mean, that's why Isaiah makes so much mockery of the stupidity of idol worship. But remember what uh, the Apostle Paul said? Because they wanted to turn away from God, because they want to uh, sever their relationship with God, they've become so silly. They think they are clever, but in fact, because they've cut God off from their life, the source of life and wisdom and everything that is good, they have now become so silly. They can't think straight. And therefore, they turn to idols. Um, I just want to say um, a couple of things about um, the way uh, this idolatry uh, can be expressed uh, even in our life as well. Uh, I said idolatry is not only just uh, serving, um, or, or idolatry is not just turning God into a, uh, a visible form, but it's also serving that is not God. How do we do that? Well, there are many ways that we do it. I mean, I mean we had a long discussion about this in our staff meeting, and uh, I sort of um, um, generated a little bit of a heated discussion because I raised the point about people wearing crosses. If you're wearing a cross this morning, please don't be offended. I'm not speaking to you. I'm just speaking about the general idea behind the wearing cross. There are many good reasons why one might choose to wear a cross. Uh, you might say, well, I, I would like to uh, let people know that I'm a Christian. Or, uh, you know, especially if you live amongst kind of a, uh, um, uh, a Muslim-dominated area, um, or if you live in that kind of country and you want everyone to know that you're a Christian person, probably one of the best things that you can do is to wear a cross. But um, the interesting point that was raised in our staff meeting was, well, if, uh, you want to let, if you want to let people know that you're a Christian person, uh, why not go hold way and then start wearing all the religious clothing that we're so familiar with? Um, people wear, uh, put on a fish sticker at the back of their car to let people know that they're Christians, and yet I've seen many cars with, with, with stickers breaking all the traffic laws. It's not very helpful, <laughs> right? You might be wearing crosses and then live up to your, your reputation. Uh, don't um, behave as if uh, you are a, a, a kind of a, a, 
a person living in this world in exactly the same way, but by, by gossiping, by, by being uh, unhappy or uh, not content with your life and things like that. In fact, the most obvious way for you, for you to represent yourself as a Christian person is not only to live upright, loving, generous life, but to speak the truth of the gospel. Let people know that you are a Christian person by confessing your faith in Jesus. Let people know that you love Jesus. Let people know that he is your life. Let people know that you've, you've spent all your life thinking about him and serving him and, and how he came into the world uh, on your behalf to die on the cross and he rose again as a ruler and a judge of the whole universe and see how that goes. Um, some people uh, have, have not, not carry the, the cross with them, but they have, say, for example, a lot of religious artefacts at home. Uh, my dad certainly was a, a lover of uh, paintings, and uh, whenever he saw a kind of a religious painting, um, he showed great interest, and so he wanted to have a, a whole collection of uh, religious paintings. I mean, we have a stained glass out at the front. Uh, why do we do this? Well, uh, in one sense we do it because uh, we want to show reverence. We want to be reminded of, of God. But notice how God says, on that day, you saw no form. You only heard my voice. And the implication of that is, listen to my word. If you want to understand who I am, and if you want to relate to me properly, if you want to, well, represent who I am to the rest of the world, then I want you to not only listen to my word, but go and obey them. And when we come to the New Testament, we are reminded to continue testifying to the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And so um, as we uh, come to the con uh, to concluding, <coughs> concluding part of uh, Moses' first sermon, I just want to um, uh, remind you that Experience is important, but experience is not enough. Both in testifying to God as well as worshipping God. Experience will not necessarily generate genuine faith. You might recall once again what happened in John's Gospel. Lots of people turned up to Jesus having seen the signs that he's performed. Just like the people of Israel. They were marveled at Jesus, fascinated by him. But what did Jesus do? He did not entrust himself to those people because he knew what was in their heart. You see, the problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is 
the corruption in our heart, the stubbornness of our heart. And Israel paid a dear price, didn't they? They were expelled from the land. They were once again put through unimaginable difficulties. And it is only when God, by his grace and mercy, poured his spirit upon people that they might finally see the glory of the Lord Jesus, who is the true image of God himself. How wonderful it is that we have that spirit in us who enables us to turn to his word in faith and repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us in the dark, but you have spoken to us. Thank you that you help us to listen to your word and respond to you in faith and repentance. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might help us to be the people who take your word seriously by not only reading them and understanding them, but putting them into practice. Please help us to find the real life and the joy of life as we listen to your word and live in obedience. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.